Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this week in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of fireworks, because the 4th of July holiday is coming up. That's the big fireworks holiday in the United States. So stick around for that. But first, a segment on a different kind of fireworks, I guess. The data point there is 25,000. That is the total number of soldiers that Evgeny Prigozhin, founder and leader of the private military organization Wagner Group, said he had under his command last week as he mounted a mutiny against Russian President Vladimir Putin. New details about the Wagner Group revolt in Russia. A senior US this morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin angrily denouncing the mutiny against him after a one-day rebellion that shook the foundations. Russian President Vladimir Putin is giving the Wagner Group an ultimatum where allegiance to Russia or leave for Belarus. That 25,000 number compares with 1.15 million active duty personnel that have been estimated to be in the Russian military the fifth biggest military in the world. And yet that disparity in size did not stop Prigozhin and the Wagner Group from organizing a march on Moscow that started in the southern city of Rostov and nearly made it to the doorstep of the capital. The events sparked fears that the Putin regime could collapse, fears that were obviously somewhat exaggerated in retrospect. But yeah, we thought we'd consider what this all reveals about the Putin regime in general, how it's comprised, and how that might contribute to it eventually coming apart. So, Adam, when we're thinking about Prigozhin, is it best to essentially think of him as a warlord, although that's a term that seems typically applied to far-off developing countries? And if he, in fact, is a warlord, I mean, was the emergence of such a role an inevitable outgrowth of Putin's divide-and-rule strategy at home, his model of authoritarianism of having competing power centers in his government? I mean, did that always imply some potential breakdown of the state's monopoly of force? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm I'm not sure he really does meet the... When I think of a warlord, I think of in 1920s China or a situation like that, right, where you've got generals with substantial forces competing for power in what is essentially a civil war situation. So one, you know, in in one nightmarish scenario, Russia descends into a situation in which one could imagine a Prigozhin Wagner style figure as a warlord. But um, that really isn't the situation that he grew out of. I mean, he was always pretty clearly a agent of the Russian state. In fact, I'm a little bit kind of uncertain about whether one can really call it a private military organization. Um, it's a lot more like the kind of off the books 
um, black ops that you know the CIA would run in setting up a an air transport company so as to filter things in and out of Central America or Vietnam, Southeast Asia, that kind of a setup. It's not even, I think, like a Blackwater, a you know, legit in in in, in inverted commas, um, Western style commercial private military contractor. It's something much closer to the state. I mean, I think broadly speaking, um, it was just regarded Wagner as a sort of more or less deniable arm of Russian state power with, with a direct wire to Putin himself. And um, to that extent, you know, it challenged the monopoly of force in the sense that, you know, it was part of the fragmentation of violence within the Russian state. But the key phrase in the Max Weber definition is the monopoly of legitimate force. And to the extent that Prigozhin and Wagner were clearly doing the bidding to, an, you know, highly successfully say in Syria of Putin himself, they were, they were uber legitimate. They were, they were in a sense, you know, playing this weird dance of the seven veils where they were, you know, both there and not there, present and not present. And the crucial thing everyone knew about them was that they had the Say so, Putin himself. So, to that extent, they were the most legitimate of legitimate force within the terms of the Russian of the Russian power structure, and that's flipped, and that's that's why, in part, this is so damaging. Though obviously, this took time to develop this rift. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask as the mutiny came underway, who were revealed to be the key actors in the state whose allegiances determine the final outcome. I mean, it seemed like this was a question of the allegiance of military and intelligence and other security agencies. And I wonder, does the relative irrelevance, the irrelevance of economic actors at that kind of moment reveal something about the primacy of violence in state formation? Yeah, I'm Violence is clearly essential to state formation, um, but I don't think it's a matter of primacy so much as you know the particular role of violence at particular moments. And we we think of you know being a state as kind of continuously being made and unmade and remade and so on. There are certain moments where violence is absolutely at the core of everything. And clearly, you know, one of those moments is when you've got a column of 25,000 armed dudes rolling towards your capital city and somebody has to stop them and you're, you know, you're drafting in mechanical diggers to, to you know, build uh, improvised um, tank traps on your motorways. At that point, obviously, you know, violence is the key thing. But if you just step back one moment and ask, you know, why does Wagner have tanks, right? As soon as you ask that question, you realize that economics comes roaring back, right? And I mean, Prigozhin, after all, has a much better claim to be a business person than he does to have a, to be a soldier. I mean, he, he was basically a kind of, you know, a, a gal. I, mean, I think in his very first iteration, he was like a violent criminal, like a, you know, armed robbery kind of a guy. And then he graduated into politically connected business and then back into the violence business. I mean, I, I think his firm... In one of Putin's recent speeches, he's revealed that his firm prospers in part because they have I don't know, what a, a $1 billion contract to supply the Russian military with rations. So, you know, he's turned military catering into a highly lucrative business. And apart from this, he's well known to have used his influence in Africa to secure lucrative concessions there. So this really is very much in the manner of, a you know, an early modern 
um, private military contractor who's who's in this, you know, for for both political power by means of the provision of um, of the means of violence, but also with with an interest to to making money. I mean, you know, the very limit, like if you're going to mobilize a group of armed men, in the end, you've got to promise them something, right? You've got to pay them off, and either you promise them booty, which then leads the kind of chaos as they rape and pillage their way through whatever territory you're allowing them to occupy, which is the classic early modern model of private military entrepreneurship, or you pay them, in which case you need a revenue source. And apparently at least one truck has been confiscated with about $50 million in cash on board, which maybe was this was Wagner's payroll. You know, you can't do this without. And then say you succeed in seizing power, a military coup comes off, then you do have to negotiate with the central bank. You do have to negotiate with the treasury. You do have to negotiate with the business interest to figure out who's going to pay taxes. So I think in the cycle of power, violence has its place. And there are moments where, you know, in the middle of a battle, violence is the decisive thing. But maintaining the battle, as we know from any modern war, is, is eminently an economic business. So they, you, you know, you sort of cycle through these different phases. And th w this was ephemeral precisely because we never really got to the, the serious business of establishing power. Yeah, when you mentioned the possibility or the, the, the precedent of a general strike in other instances, that reminds me that one of the remarkable things about this event last week is that it was the seeming absence of the masses, of the public on both sides of this event. And I'm curious what you make of that. I mean, can politics really function in such sweeping historical ways without the involvement of the people being governed? I think it depends on the moment, right? And the configuration. If you think about three moments recently of, you know, in a sense, violent political action or the threat of violent political action in Russia. And so there's the, the coup, the Prizhozhin, Wagner, whatever we're going to call it, uh, rebellion. And then I was thinking, you know, if you think about the collapse of the Soviet Union, that, that, in, in August 1991 with the coup against Gorbachev. That, that's much closer, I think, to a moment where you know, there's this famous scene when Boris Yeltsin, already a well-known Russian politician, but he literally climbs on a, on a tank and, uh, um, and you know, calls for a popular uprising to stop the, to stop the coup um, initially to defend Gorbachev, but in the end, of course, then the Soviet Union falls within a matter of months. Um, so that's one instance. I mean, shortly after that, the one I was thinking of that really was very rarely invoked in in relation to what's happened is the is Boris Yeltsin's standoff with the Russian Parliament, which happened two years later, um, when you know the Soviet legacy Parliament with with new additions confronted Yeltsin, and Yeltsin mobilized the military to have a shootout with the with the Russian Parliament, and that didn't call people onto the streets. I think people were very confused about how to make sense of this. Um, and it was very bloody. I, I didn't realize quite how many people died, but the, the estimate is that 147 people were killed and 437 were wounded. And it's not surprising because they were using tanks to shell the parliament building. So what we've seen is really a very mild incident by comparison with arguably those two earlier moments in recent Russian history or Soviet history where this question of power was posed. And on at least one occasion in 91, the popular force was summoned and was present. There are some really rather remarkable videos you can see on YouTube of the rallying of populations in Petersburg, um, now Petersburg at that moment, 
But then other moments where, yes, it was really a shootout, but a shootout around the parliament, which then, you know, patched itself back together and met again. So that's another permutation um, where the, the National Assembly itself becomes a small scale battlefield. I mean, 150 and killed and 400, 500 wounded. That's not a small, you know, that's a decent, that's a major shootout that went on for about a week. Hmm. Yeah, obviously the central figure in all of these events of the past week still is Vladimir Putin himself. And there's been plenty of commentary this past week about how Putin himself now seems weaker. And I wanted to ask, what does image, you know, because it does seem like we're talking essentially about image and reputation. What exactly does that have to do with effective control of a country? I mean, is that just a mistaken understanding of what power really consists of? Yeah, I was thinking about it. I find it difficult to pin down really as a, as a, as a question. I mean, I think we all know, you know, we know what you mean. Like there's some, and Putin clearly feels the pressure, right? Because he's gone out to the people now and had these, these televised sort of meet and greets, which, which are very unusual for him because he's, he clearly doesn't enjoy it. And, and, and I think part of his, the derangement of his regime is to do with the, this self-imposed isolation that he's gone into since COVID, and which plays, I think, to part of his personality. Um, and I don't really quite know what image we're left with. I mean, clearly a regime shaken, and this is not this is not the frankly brilliant young Putin of the late 90s and early 2000s. If you've seen him, I think I may have talked about it before, but there's this video of him giving a speech to the Bundestag, and he comes across as one of the more lucid, eloquent personally charismatic politicians of the early 21st century it's really quite it's quite striking he's a very very powerful figure at that moment and he doesn't seem like that now but then you think about america you know recent american presidents and the way it's read as much as anything because that's where your question goes you know isn't it like where what um what does the personal physiognomy and kind of characteristics of the of this figure really what does it add and like think about biden and trump like and the way in which you know the fox news and its audience cannot stop talking about how frail Biden seems um, on the one hand, you know, and how by contrast, a bullient and, you know, dynamic Trump appears. But then, you know, there was the reverse liberal knock on Trump that he was terrified of going downstairs and like to have his hand held. Hmm. I guess finally, I wanted to ask whether Putin has overcommitted his military to Ukraine. Is that one of the conclusions we can draw from this past week? I mean, how much military does a normal country need at home ready to respond to domestic instability or invasion along these lines? I didn't, I didn't really quite know how to go about doing this. So I, I, I kind of, I looked for some numbers. I thought, okay, well, maybe I can like frame this question in some way. So I mean, why don't we like just compare society's regimes with regard to the number of folks in uniform, soldiers, for want of a better word, they have in relation to population? And so, you know, can we do a spectrum here? And um, I mean, if we start with the US, um, you know, you're in the kind of ballpark of of uh, about a hundred, about sorry, in the, if you start with the US, you're in the ballpark of you know, 330 million inhabitants, 1.5 million in uniform, roughly speaking. So you've got a ratio of, you know, 200, maybe 230 civilians per per soldier. I mean, that kind of, that gives us an idea. Of course, you'd really want National Guard and police and all these kind of numbers. It's quite a complicated 
equation to do this. But let's stick with the soldiers because that's what we're talking about here. And that the question implied is like the trade-off between using military outside and using them internally. So let's focus on the soldiers because they're the people that could be used in that way. So America has a ratio of one, one uniformed soldier for 237. And then you go to what you might think of as like more classical European military powers. One of those is Russia. So the number you cited early on gives us an idea, right? So there's about 143 million Russians. So if there's about 1.2, 1.3 million Russians in uniform at any given moment, that's a ratio of about one to 100. And that's the same for Turkey as well. If you look at Turkey, so it's got conscription, it fights border wars. It's also a regime that's obviously interested with internal security. So that's your kind of ratio. And that's a kind of, if I think back to 19th or early 20th century history, that's the kind of ratio classic conscription-based states would have, one to 100, something like that. So Russia doesn't stand out compared to that benchmark. You know, if the Villamine Germany was thinking about repressing a revolution, this is the kind of number of troops it would roughly have at its disposal. So if you're committing a substantial fraction of those to a war, you are dramatically weakening your domestic control capacity. Um, if you go to really repressive regimes, you know, I thought Myanmar, but Myanmar like actually has a ratio that's quite like a standard military state. And that I, I don't quite know how to make sense of that. So I thought, okay, let's even more repressive than Myanmar. North Korea, now we're talking, so North Korea has a population of 26 million and 1.2 million men and women under arms. So that's a ratio of hmm. 20 inhabitants for every soldier. So that's one in five. Eritrea, I, I think maybe many people regard as perhaps the most repressive regime in the world, 3.6 million inhabitants, 200,000 soldiers. So that's a ratio of one in one for 18. So that's like that's a nation in arms, really. That's that's really extraordinarily intense. Many people may be wondering where's China on this scale. Well, the thing with China is it's just so big. I mean, how big could its army possibly be? And so China's ratio comes out more around five hundred, so twice the number of civilians that there are in the U.S. But but I, I think that's largely an effect of the fact that if you've got one point four billion people, you know, even with an army of three point three million or whatever, you, the ratio is still different from from come you know a country like the United States. So I think that gives us an idea. Like I think Russia is kind of in the middle of this. It's kind of in the classic conscription based European military power. And so for a society like that, yes, when it is committed to the kind of scale of effort that Russia is making in Ukraine, it's not by any means an all out war, because if it were, all of their troops would be at the front, and they're clearly not, but a very large percentage are. And that definitely means you're stretched thin. And I think it did become pretty obvious that the resources that Moscow had at its disposal to immediately stop the Wagner column was pretty, were, were pretty light, actually. Hmm. There you go. Okay, so now we have that in black and white in terms in international comparison, comparative perspective. Yeah, maybe Putin has overcommitted. But uh, we will take a break here and be back to talk about fireworks. Hey, it's Cameron here. 
Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is $1 billion. That is the amount that Americans spend each year on fireworks on the 4th of July, the country's Independence Day holiday. That's according to the American Pyrotechnic Association. That estimate includes both the purchase of retail items for personal use as well as professional fireworks displays that many towns and cities organize. Yeah, so a year ago on the 4th of July, we did economics of hot dogs. So we thought we'd address the economics of the other mainstay of 4th of July celebrations and celebrations elsewhere in the world, of course. So yeah, to start, Adam, what countries exactly produce fireworks and what is the source of the component ingredients exactly? Yeah, what a, what a great question. Uh, something I've been obsessed by since I was a little kid. I mean, the answer to where uh, fireworks come from, both historically and currently, is is the same. It's China, and they now mass produce them on a scale that means that they dominate all of the private market for fireworks. So, so of that a billion that Americans will spend, around about nine hundred million will go to ultimately to. Chinese producers minus the commissions in between. It didn't used to be like this. So American firework culture was largely an import originally from Europe in the 18th century, but then as mass migration takes off in the 19th century, overwhelmingly from the European home of fireworks, which is Italy. And um, the East Coast manufacturers of fireworks that became a very big deal in the late 19th and early 20th century are multi-generational Italian firework families so they are established all the way along the the east coast and in the midwest the ingredients yeah i mean uh, i was so when as a kid i just i really one of the things <coughs> i most wanted to know was the formula for gunpowder and here it is folks so <laughs> if your kids are listening maybe you want to shut their ears exactly so, all right 25 percent potassium nitrate 15 percent charcoal and 10 percent sulfur this gives you a big bang. And sourcing this has a really fascinating, has a fascinating history. And, you know, an interesting linguistic history as well. I mean, in the in the 16th century, as the Europeans, you know, began to build armies that depended on gunpowder, which was originally invented for firework purposes and then moved into the military domain, you know, there was a lively trade in expertise. Um, Elizabeth I, the great Elizabeth, fighting the Armada, fighting the Spanish cut off from Europe, procured at huge expense from Dutch and German sources, the instructions for making saltpeter to grow, <laughs> which was the secret of the Feuerwerkbuch, you know, which in German just means firework book. One of the one of the more you know terrifying sources of saltpeter, if you have to improvise, is so-called niter beds, which are basically giant pools of fermenting excrement, uh, liberally lubricated by urine. 
Um, and these were a last resort measure for explosive production, notably in the Confederacy during the American Civil War. Large numbers of people, we're talking tens of thousands of people, included many enslaved people, were pressed into working in these huge, one can only imagine the stench, huge beds of fermenting nitrogen source, which is basically animal and human excrement uh, lubricated with, with urine. I mean, there was collections in the confederacy of people's chamber pots to feed this production process. Mercifully today, and really since the late 19th century onwards, this has been done on an industrial chemical basis. You can, of course, also mine guano and natural sources of excrement. But from the 20th century onwards, this has become a largely chemical-driven process. But it's still an interesting range of countries that make this potassium nitrate. So Chile, which was always a classic guana source, Israel, the Netherlands, Jordan, and China. So I think this must be a combination of naturally occurring minerals, cheap power, which uh, drive this industry. So obviously, the big topic in the economy in recent years has been inflation. And I'm curious how inflation has hit fireworks. I mean, what sort of price increases have there been? And what exactly is driving the inflation in fireworks exactly? Have US-China tariffs played a role here? Yeah. So since this, you know, we're we're celebrating an American holiday, let's make this an American political story because it sure is. So yeah, when... um, when Trump first started talking about uh, his China tariffs, you know, he was going to slap 25% on uh, all Chinese imports. There was a huge rash. If you Google this topic, you know, fireworks and inflation, you just find all of this mainstream media, you know, holding out the prospect that Trump is going to be the Grinch who stole 4th of July. And then, of course, in a kind of classic fashion, an Ohio retailer, a major importer of Chinese fireworks, stepped up to donate a fireworks display for Trump's 2019 4th of July worth $750,000. And hey, presto, the story goes away. So, you know, it's one of those stories. Fast forward to 2021, 2022. And what do we have? It's, you know, Fox News covering Biden inflation and how Biden inflation is going to steal your is going to steal your 4th of July fireworks celebration. De facto, what's been driving this is the same supply chain issues that have been driving the inflation across uh, across the US and many Western economies, right? If your cost of uh, hiring a, a shipping container from Shanghai to Port of LA or whatever triple, as they did in 2021, 2022, then whatever you put in it and fireworks will be one of the things, it just gets much more expensive. So there's been a major surge in fireworks pricing. And it's apparently continuing into this year, though the the coverage of this issue seems to be so driven by politics in the US that uh, this year it seems to be a relatively unpolitical issue. But I would imagine people will find that unfortunately the fireworks cost a bit more than normal. Hmm. So we talked about the production of fireworks, but when it comes to using them, what countries use fireworks mostly? Is this a pastime of mostly rich countries around the world? Well, I think it, they, they developed in what was then, of course, the most sophisticated culture and state form in the world, which was China. And apparently they originate in the discovery people had that if you threw bamboo rods into the fire, they exploded in this really interesting way. And then from the Song Dynasty onwards, so the late six, seven, eight hundred AD, that kind of period, people started experimenting with artificially creating the effect of an exploding bamboo rod. And that's where it originated. So it was an, an effort to actually emulate the sound of this cracking noise. And then in the course of the 
I can't the... picture this. One second. What happens to the bamboo rod? Well, if you explode camp, if you've ever been of... around a campfire, if you put things into a campfire, you've not done this. Like all sorts of interesting stuff happens. It explodes. It pops. I guess it's under a certain amount of tension. And so this was the idea. And then in the you know in the Middle Ages, in the in what we were in the, Europe called the Middle Ages, you again begin to get experimentation with coloring. And again, the Chinese lead this. The West acquires access to this Chinese technology by way of the Arabs, by way of the Syrians. So it's Moorish culture, which brings it to you know, Europe in the 12th, 13th, 14th century. And from the 14th century onwards, we then see the quite rapid development of European firework culture, which all the way through the 1800s is extremely self-conscious of its debt to China. So in the, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, you still see European commentators describing European fireworks displays, which we know are going on. You know, people like Handel are, are writing music to go with them to punctuate the fireworks, but they're, re- they're relating to them to the much greater pomp and ceremony of the, of the Chinese fireworks. But I mean, across the world, there is a huge fireworks culture. If you think about the way in which Diwali is celebrated, I mean, India is an absolute madhouse in that season with, you know, fireworks going off left, right and center. Mexico as well is a huge center of fireworks culture, Central America. So I think it's less a question of absolute income than it is spending on a great occasion. And they're a way of marking a great occasion. Good to know. It's a universal, a universal thing then. I wanted to ask, what is the collateral damage overall from fireworks use? I mean, whether it's environmental damage or damage to health from the from the byproducts of fireworks or damage from fire or just grotesque injuries from mistaken use of fireworks how how can we get a grasp on all of the damage that fireworks do yeah they're basically poisonous so um they're referred to in the literature there really is a literature on green fireworks i've been googling hard this has been fascinating called they're called dirty bombs and i i do this in part because i have personal history i I used to make myself sick regularly uh, year in, year out, because in the aftermath of the German um, Germany's ample fireworks celebrations on New Year's, I would assiduously comb the streets of Heidelberg and collect up all of the remnants of unburnt fireworks in the hope of being able to accumulate a little personal cache of uh, gunpowder. And uh, this involved storing large numbers of fireworks in my bedroom and um, sulfur poisoning. <laughs> I mean, wow. A mild wow. dose of, yeah, of, of, uh, I would get, you know, several weeks of very bad headaches. And uh, anyway, wow. until my, my parents um, intervened. I, that, that's interesting in its own right. And uh, I did not know going into this segment, you're, you're just yeah. how deep yeah, your no, interest I, in this uh, in Seriously, this no, I mean, like, come on, explosives and gunpowder. Like, sure, uh, sure. Who, who's not into this stuff? Anyway, they are poisonous, especially the coloring. So one of the things that goes into these is various types of rare earth and heavy metal. That's what makes the beautiful colors. And that's not great stuff for people to be inhaling. Um, apparently especially the green ones are ones to look out for. They have particularly noxious and uh, dirty chemicals in them. So whenever you see, folks, whenever you see a, uh, a green firework going off, you know, try to hold your breath. At a more serious level, they're, they're just flat out dangerous. I mean, this is on Wikipedia, astonishingly, there is a list of major firework disasters of the last 150 years. And we're talking real damage here. I mean, uh, we shouldn't joke, like, you know, I had a rough estimate that's like seven or 800 people who've been killed worldwide in major explosions. So, you know, several people a year uh, fall victim to this. In, in China, where they've periodically attempted really comprehensive bans, 
they, you know, there was one notorious incident where Chinese CTTV, so the official TV broad station, conducted an unlicensed massive fireworks display from the roof of their building in Beijing and set fire to and burned down an entire massive cultural center next door to them, which then prompted a crackdown. So they're for real and people should, you know, really pay attention. We, the, the My childhood was haunted with British public service broadcasting about how you were going to burn your face off. And you people really should pay attention. This is no joke. But there is also a politics of fireworks. And this is anyone who knows the politics of um, air pollution in Delhi will be familiar with this because Delhi has notoriously bad air um, in the period from the fall through to the early New Year. And it's commonplace and convenient to blame this on the fireworks displays around Diwali, which are just, you know, popular outpouring of of joy and celebration. And periodically the city has cracked down. It's an open secret that the large scale, the large scale air pollution really hasn't got nothing to do with the fireworks. It's to do with the burning of stubble in the agricultural areas around Delhi, which is uh, which is an effect in large part of the subsidy regime that the political parties in North India buy into to maintain that level of production. So fireworks serve as something of a scapegoat for air pollution worries. But A, they are poisonous, (laughs) and B, they are dangerous, and for real, they really are. So finally, I wanted to ask, how exactly does one go about becoming a fireworks expert? A pyrotechnician is the term, I gather for that expertise. Is there a credentialing process? I mean, how does one become a pyrotechnician? I mean, quite possibly my favorite question on ones and twos ever. Um, uh, It sounds like like it's an alternative uh, life. It's career. No, Uh, seriously. uh, It's easier. Yeah, it's it's relatively easy, Cam. I thought, you know, (laughs) there's there's a course we can sign up for operated by Hmm. uh, the famous Gucci uh, uh, Italian-American family of fireworks manufacturers in the U.S., 200 (laughs) bucks. Like, you know, we could go and get ourselves permitted. Yeah. And, you know, we'd have to learn a bunch of chemistry and and ballistics and God knows what. It would all be absolutely fascinating. I think the major hitch actually is that what you – so first of all, you need to get credentialed in some way. I'm a little bit vague about precisely which one it is that you need, but there is a credential you need. Then you need to apply for a permit and you need to spell out who on your team, you know, has got the credential and who not. And then the third thing, and this is really where the catch is, you apparently need for any substantial display, at least in the New York area, you need a million dollars worth of insurance. And that might be where that's where the rubber hits the road, uh, because I'm not sure that anyone in their right mind would insure you and uh, you and me. Wait, to, uh, how does that insurance work? Run a large- general... You need you need to get insurance, uh, a specific um, fireworks for for every display, any any given display. You need it needs to be insured at at that level. Yeah, we could we could kind of look in. We could look into whether we need year-round fireworks insurance. But since in the US, it's really a seasonal thing. But those are the three. You know, unsurprisingly, right? You need some kind of training. Then you need a permit. And then you actually need the financial wherewithal to at least compensate for the minimum. I will admit that bar is lower than I than I yes. thought it would be. Uh, <laughs> Me too. You know, I'm quite charmed. <laughs> I, 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 I thought that I thought there would be years of training or something, but really it's if you can find someone to insure it, it sounds like you can call yourself a pyrotechnician. The German ruling is the is characteristically charming and it's the one we've talked about with New Year's celebrations. But apparently there is a very comprehensive licensing system as you'd imagine for fireworks use in Germany. 
very comprehensive, except that the law specifies that for a, a number of hours to be determined by the local authorities every year, a number of hours, all of these rules are suspended. So they literally have an exception clause that says not for days, for hours, you can suspend all of these rules. And then people can use fireworks in this class, this special you know, German law class of fireworks oh my in unrestricted goodness. ways. Yeah. But it literally is like a, and may all hell break loose for at least, you know, this period of time. That, that is exactly yeah. the feeling. That is exactly the feeling on New Year's Eve in Germany, which seems to have been a very formative period for you, uh, Adam. It sounds Indeed, like the, yeah. the New Year's yeah, yeah. celebrations for you were, were uh, uh, created a lifelong fascination. I don't uh, seem to have, you know, taken any lasting damage, and nor does my daughter. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I hope nothing has been passed All your down. fingers, yeah. all your... Well, this may be the final episode of Ones and Twos. We may be going into a full-time fireworks podcast starting next week. We'll see. But otherwise, yeah, we'll leave this conversation here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tews, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZ at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.